So it's really fun to have IJM here, actually, because IJM is one of our partner organizations, is 24-7 Prayer, and I've had the privilege of um, doing a few different events and whatnot with Andy and Zoe over the years. Um, so it's really fun that some of my friends who aren't normally here are here tonight. Um, so we are going to be um, looking at prayer tonight um, as part of our Foundations series. And we're going to be reading from Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Um, I think it's going to come up on the screen, um, but you're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles as well if you like. Um, so I'm just going to read. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. I just, I'm going to pause there really quickly and just say, I find this interesting because his disciples, Jesus' disciples were Jews. They prayed all the time. Um, you know, in Jewish culture, they would probably pray more than we would tend to pray. Um, and yet they're, they're looking at Jesus and they're going, teach us how to pray. I think it's because they saw something in the way Jesus prayed that was different he had a different way of praying and interacting with God than they had ever seen before, and they wanted that. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you something. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the first thing that Jesus says in this response of the disciples to teach them how to pray, I think is really important. The very first thing he says, pray like this, Father, relationship. This is the starting place for prayer. Prayer is where we know God and we know that we are deeply known by him. It's what we were created for, and it's our deepest longing. 
to know and to be known that we are known. Prayer is to approach God with the confidence of a child that knows they are loved. A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think of God, his nature, his character, that is going to affect every area of our lives, whether we realize it or not. And through prayer, we get to know God. We get to know his nature and his character. This is how it works in human relationships. You know, like, how are you going to decide someone's going to be your best friend? That, that person that um, you're going to share your deepest, darkest secrets with, that you're going to be completely yourself with. It takes time, conversation, equal listening and sharing of hearts. And then you, you start to get to know one another, and then you start to get to trust one another. And then when you have something really big that you need help with, that you need to ask them, they're the person you go to. And this is the very core of prayer. And I think this is why when we lose sight of that, that relationship, knowing God, being known by him, when we lose sight of that, when we allow prayer to become utilitarian and transactional, we lose the joy in it. So what do I mean by that? Um, quite a number of years ago, <laughs> I was part of a team, and um, we were a very busy team, um, full-time ministry, and um, the majority of my team were real activists. <laughs> and um, I harped all the time about the importance of prayer and us taking time to spend with God as a team, and, and um, they didn't want to take that time, so I became the appointed prayer person. Um, so I prayed for the team all the time. I listened to God for the team. Um, and after a while... I had no joy in prayer, even in my personal prayer life, because everything was about the job, about ministry. It was transactional, utilitarian, and God had to take me through a season of kind of drawing me back from everything and reminding me of these truths, that prayer is first and foremost um, before asking for things, it's about just being with him, being in his presence. And in that place of being in his presence, he restored me. And that life and that joy came back into my prayer life. What I mean by utilitarian is when we use prayer as a means to an end, when we use it to try and get God to bless our big ideas, our missional efforts, all the stuff we're doing for him. In his book, Heartfire, a man named Johannes Hartle, and I would really recommend this book. You can buy it from Muddy Pearl. And I promise Muddy Pearl did not pay me um, to promote this book. I really would recommend it. It's an excellent book. But Johannes says, every hour of prayer is a collision and an invitation. A collision between the trivial things I consider important and what he calls important. 
Jesus says to Martha how only one thing is necessary and invites her to let go of her sterile buzz of activity. Not because working itself is bad, but because love grows cold if it doesn't leave any space for what Mary does, sit at his feet and listen. What do I mean by prayer being transactional, having a transactional mindset in prayer? I mean, when our prayer lives become more about asking God for things than just time spent in his presence and listening as much, maybe even more, than speaking. And the the danger, I think, of this kind of prayer, when we make prayer very transactional like this, is that when God doesn't give us what we're asking for, or he maybe doesn't give it to us in the time frame we, we want it in, is that we, we very easily become disappointed and upset with God. Because in that place, we've made prayer about us and what we can get out of it, rather than it being a two-way relationship. I'm going to jump to verses 10 through 13 in this passage in Luke, because they're kind of, in a sense, Jesus unpacking what he means about Father. So, I love the message version. It says, don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide and seek game. If your little boy asks for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake? If your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. And don't you think that the father who conceived you in love will give the Holy Spirit when you ask him? Don't you think the father who conceived you in love will give the Holy Spirit when you ask him? He gives us himself. But when we're focused on prayer being a transactional thing, getting the thing that we want, that we're asking for, then we can miss that. Maybe instead of giving us that thing, he's trying to give us himself. And we can not only miss it, sometimes I think without realizing that's what we're doing, we can actually reject him because somehow in our mind, Jesus isn't enough. We have to have that thing we're asking for. Pete Gregg, who leads the 24-7 prayer movement, says this, I am transactional, but he is infuriatingly, resolutely relational. I pray about some big decision, and he merely says, I love you. I ask what I should do, and he suggests, let's hang out. I ask for a little help, and he ventures, be my friend. Time and time again, the great choreographer and friend of this tiny frenetic soul chooses to ignore the substance of my most urgent prayers in order to answer the deepest cries of my heart. He gives us himself. 
And it's not that we shouldn't ask for practical things. Jesus shows us in verses three and four, yes, ask for the practical, for bread, for forgiveness, for help. But it's that the asking for these things are so much better when it flows out of relationship, out of knowing his heart and knowing we're loved and valued by him. And it's in prayer that we are reminded of our true identity, that we're not just slaves working for him, but we're his kids, his friends, his partners, doing and praying with him. That leads us into the next bit of the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come. This is about partnership. We were created not only for relationship with God, but partnership. From the story of creation to the words of Jesus and the gospels um, to the final books of the Bible, God makes it clear that he always intended us to, in a sense, co-reign with him to partner with him in establishing his kingdom on this earth, of bringing justice in Ghana, of seeing hope in our friends' lives. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master's thinking or planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from my Father. We're invited to come with this shameless audacity that Jesus talks about in Luke around this friend coming to his friend in the middle of the night. He invites us to come with that same shameless audacity and ask for the big things, the hard things, the seemingly impossible things like the end of slavery in our lifetime. The great theologian Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. IJM, prayer is the beginning of their uprising against modern day slavery. Because I've worked with these guys a good bit, I happen to know that so many of their stories of success and victory and rescue started in prayer. One of my favorite examples, you guys, there's so many stories I could tell you guys about what happens when we partner with God in prayer, when we pray for the big things. But there's one person I want to focus on. He's one of my favorite examples of what it looks like to be God's friend and partner. His name was Donald McPhail. Most of you would be aware of a famous, powerful revival that happened in the Hebridean Islands long ago. And there was a, a great preacher from Edinburgh that was central to this revival. His name was Duncan Campbell. But Duncan Campbell himself would have said that 16-year-old Donald McPhail was the real key to much of what God did at that time. In his book, Dirty Glory, Pete Gregg says this about Donald McPhail. There were times in the revival that Duncan Campbell's preaching was surprisingly ineffective, and he would turn to Donald for prayer support. 
On one occasion, when Duncan was preaching, his words were falling flat. Donald rose to his feet and prayed a single word with deep emotion. Father, he said. That was all, and the Holy Spirit came in power. People began to cry out for salvation without another word being preached. On another occasion, Donald took a naval officer to catch a bus. When Donald shook my hand, the sailor later said, it was as if God himself touched me. And as the bus drove away, the officer gave his life to Jesus. Donald's remarkable spiritual authority flowed from his intimacy with the Father in prayer. What could it look like in our lives if we walked in that kind of friendship and partnership with God in the place of prayer? There's this great story about when Duncan Campbell comes to visit Donald at his family home, and Donald's mom comes running out of the house um, to, to find Donald in the barn because she's excited that the famous preacher, Duncan Campbell, has come to visit her son. And she finds Donald kneeling with his Bible deep in prayer. Please tell Mr. Campbell, Donald said firmly, that he shall have to wait because I am having an audience with the king. In our culture of productivity and activism, this kind of prayer might feel and look like a waste of time, and it might even offend some of our own Christian sensibilities about how busy we need to be in the work of the kingdom. Doing stuff. Producing things. But it's a beautiful waste because it's about Jesus, and Jesus is worthy of it just like Donald McPhail knew. When asked about his 24-7 house of prayer in Germany, Johannes Hartel said, what's the point of it? I think it's worth leading such a life because Jesus is worth it. And even if revival does not come, no one comes to visit us and no one sees or hears what we do, I still think that wasting my life for him is not a waste. I'm going to wrap up with this final passage from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Some of you guys may have heard me speak about this before. You may have heard Carl speak about it before. Um, but we're going to talk about it again. This is talking about Jesus. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly, indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime. But you will not always have me, 
She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This nard that is spoken of, pure nard oil, is incredibly concentrated, as you can imagine. It's oil. Perfumists today would say that they would use less than 1% in some of their more expensive perfumes because of how rare and costly it is. And the smell, though pleasant, is extremely powerful. And so when Mary poured this, (laughs) breaks this jar of pure nard oil, and pours it over Jesus, the smell would have filled the entire room. And, and though it's technically supposed to be a nice spell, I would imagine the power of it would have been almost offensive to the senses. It says that they are in ha- the house of Simon the leper, which suggests that Simon was either dead or had been excommunicated out into a leper colony. So most likely this Mary is his daughter, which is why it would explain that in in this time, in this culture, she would have been there in a room full of men. And this oil is quite likely her entire inheritance, which her father would have given to her as a sort of dowry to ensure her ability to marry. This was common in Hebrew culture because a woman didn't have a whole lot of value outside of marriage and having children. So it was important to the father to make sure that his daughter would be able to be taken care of and would marry. So you can understand this nard, it's expensive, worth over a year's wages. Her entire security, her whole future rested in this this bottle of nard. So you can imagine why people respond with such extreme indignation. It completely offends their their human senses. It, It seems ridiculously extravagant. But they saw, they didn't see what Mary saw. Even Jesus, what he says seems almost harsh. He says, um, You'll always have the poor with you. He's not saying don't do good to the poor. What he's saying is you're missing the point, and the point is me. But Mary saw what Jesus, who he really is, and it was like she understood what was about to happen. Jesus had spent ages trying to get through to the disciples what he was about to do in going to the cross, and they just didn't get it. But I think Mary did. And she knew he was worth her everything. This is only days away from the cross. And they didn't bathe very often back then. So days later, when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and most of you will know the story where he wrestles with the Father in the place of prayer as he knows he's about to go to the cross. And his emotion is so intense that he sweats drops of blood. He would have still reaped of the nard oil. When he's arrested and stood before Pilate, 
he would have still reeked of this act of worship of Mary's. When he stumbles up the road carrying his cross, through the sweat and the blood, he would have still been smelling her worship, her devotion. When he's hanging on the cross, his disciples have run, his family have abandoned him, he even feels abandoned by his heavenly father. He would have still been smelling Mary's love. And when he draws in his final breath that he gave for us, what he would have breathed in in that final breath would have been the beauty of Mary's waist. So I don't know where you guys are at tonight in prayer. I, I don't know if for some of you, um, you've been a Christian for a long time and, and prayer's just what you do as a Christian. It's just second nature but maybe you feel like it's grown a bit dry lately. Maybe you've known disappointment, and because of that, there's not the joy there used to be in it. Maybe you know that recently you've been praying for something, and Jesus has offered you himself rather than the thing you've been praying for, and without really realizing that's what you've done, you've, you've rejected that because you so want the thing that you're praying for. But maybe tonight you're feeling that, that invitation of, of Jesus saying, would you let me give you myself again? Maybe you know that just in the busyness of life and trying to look after other people and love the city well, that you've made prayer something that is like a luxury, a waste that you don't have time for, but maybe you're feeling a call to explore what, what prayer as waste might look like for you right now. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not even sure if God exists, but you'd kind of like to find out. Wherever you are tonight, I would say that prayer is the starting place for all of us. And so as the band come up, um, we're going to take some time um, to just respond to the Father in prayer. You can do that on, the, on your own. You can do it in worship. You can do it by going to the prayer ministry team, which will be, they'll be available to my right and your left. And in a little bit, Kelsey is going to come up and she's going to lead us in kind of a creative response of prayer. But for now, I just want to encourage you, whatever in that message maybe tugged at your heart, let God speak into that as we go into worship and respond to him with just simple conversation.